Hello and welcome back to Historical for another trip through words and time. Today we're diving back into the realm of myth, magic and talking animals. And we're also taking our first steps into ancient India and stories set down in Sanskrit. I'm going to kick off with a confession here. I grew up in Southern Africa, and one of the groups of indigenous people in this part of the world are the San people. They have a long and very rich history, and I hope we'll be able to talk about some of that really soon. But as a youngster, I always misheard, and I thought the grown-ups were talking about Sanskrit, which I assumed was the written form of the various San dialects and languages. So you can imagine my surprise the first time someone in a rom-com got an obscure Sanskrit tattoo after a tricky breakup, and I thought my neck of the woods was far more famous than it actually is. Of course, I was completely wrong. As anyone who was actually listening carefully to the adults knows, it's Sanskrit, not Sanskrit. Sanskrit is one of the classical languages of South Asia, which basically means that it's a very old, independent language with a huge body of written literature. It's a quite complicated linguistic category, which we won't go too far into because I'll probably get completely lost in the nuances. But the interesting thing about classical languages is that most of them are considered to be dead. They aren't spoken anymore because the language in its spoken form has grown and changed and evolved, usually in a whole host of different directions. There are even some English words with Sanskrit influence, which might surprise you. Bandana is one, candy, crimson, orange... Even the word narc falls onto that list, but my understanding of that word is another embarrassing story that I'll save for another time, because I don't come off particularly cool. But even though spoken languages have changed and evolved from their Sanskrit roots, there's an enormous body of ancient literature in the original language. And today we're going to talk about one particular set of stories from India, which has spread all over the world and been translated into at least 50 different languages, with at least 200 different versions. This is the Panchatantra. It's a collection of animal fables in verse and prose, which are all interrelated and interconnected with an overarching frame story. One really beautiful way I've heard this described is to think about the stories as Russian nesting dolls. So you have the big story, the outside doll, with all these other stories packed inside it, each one leading on to the next. The surviving copy of the Panchatantra dates back to about 200 BCE, but the fables themselves are probably far older, because they're likely to have been part of a long oral tradition of storytelling. For a while, people actually thought that this style of animal fable had originated in India, just because these stories were so old and seemed to have spread so far. But that idea had way more to do with the tendency of researchers to get really overexcited than anything else. Nowadays, most people think that these sorts of fables developed independently, and the ones that really survived the long passage of time were the ones that had some moral idea or some human idea that was shared by other communities. There's a very beautiful Iranian story about how the Panchatantra made it to the Middle East. According to this story, in 550 CE, the king's physician Borswi was kicking back, relaxing, and looking over his scrolls for a bit of light reading. Whether he got quite what he bargained for or not depends entirely on how you feel about reanimated corpses. Either way, he found a passage that got him really excited, and he went racing off to the king. He'd stumbled across something about a mountain herb that could be ground down and sprinkled over a corpse, instantly bringing it back to life. 
If you're thinking that sounds like something that might drastically improve the quality of your Monday mornings, I'm afraid you'll have to stick to coffee. Borswe, of course, never found this miracle cure for hangovers, death, and everything in between, leaving us with very little option but to suck it up. But he does get permission from the king to go looking for it, which is what leads him to India. He dutifully climbs a likely-looking mountain where he meets a sage. The sage points out, kindly, we must hope, that he's made a completely pointless journey. No such herb exists in India, or probably anywhere else. But the sage does give Borswe a very poetic bit of advice instead. The herb, he says, is the scientist. Science is the mountain, which Borswe has just clambered up, but which is often completely out of reach of most of the masses. The corpse is the person without knowledge, who dies if he stays that way, but can be revived through knowledge and education. The sage then points to a copy of the Panchatantra, and Borswe spends the rest of his life translating it and spreading it around the ancient Middle East. The sage breathes a sigh of relief at having pulled off an admittedly laboured metaphor, and the king presumably finds someone else to deal with the everyday matter of coughs and headaches. The Panchatantra is split into five subsections, which each have a subtitle and a sub-theme. Book one deals with the loss of friends, and once you've been thoroughly briefed on all the ways you might mess it up, book two jumps into the winning of friends. Book three is on war and peace, or owls and crows. Book four follows up with how you might lose what you've gained, and book five completes the cycle with a series of cautionary tales about hasty actions. In self-help terms, this is basically how to lose a friend, how to make a friend, how to fight with a friend, why not to fight with a friend, and don't be an idiot. As we've already said, the whole text is a series of interconnected fables, much like Arabian Nights to give a more recent example. We don't have time today to tell them all, but we'll definitely circle back to more of them. Today we're going to stick to book one, The Losing of Friends, and the story of the Lion King and the Bull. You'll remember me saying that there are about 200 versions of these stories in a multitude of languages, and of course the names of the characters are different in all of them. Rather than undergoing the perilous anthropological task of picking which version and names to use, we're going to tell the story in quite broad strokes and get very generic, which has the added bonus of giving you something interesting to Google once you get to work. So in the beginning, the bull belongs to a merchant. Unfortunately for the bull, the merchant is not a particularly nice dude. He's on the way to market, and he has his two bulls pulling the cart. One of them starts limping, and the merchant does what many not particularly nice dudes would do, and abandons him on the side of the road. Once freed from the yoke of animal cruelty, the bull, unsurprisingly, gets better, and starts living his best life in the wild. One day, the king of lions is roaming around, doing his thing, possibly singing show tunes with a small and improbably coloured hornbull, he hears the bull snuffling around, and he runs away. Which is fair enough, because lion queens are usually the ones doing the heavy lifting, and there aren't any around. Unfortunately, there are two jackals lurking nearby. Not just any jackals, but ex-ministers in the Lion King's government. They see this unhappy situation for exactly what it is. A chance to get ahead. Actually, to be fair... Only one of them takes this line. The other one just sort of goes along with it. If you're sensing any disdain for the integrity of government here, I promise it's entirely accidental. The jackals introduce the Lion King and the bull, hoping to curry favour. But all that really happens is that the two big animals become besties, the bull starts hanging around all the time, and the lion pretty much adopts vegetarianism. The jackals can't have this. 
So they go to the king and tell him he's been looking a bit peaky, and they hear the bull is about to turn on him. Watch out, they say, for the moment when he lowers his horns. Of course, they then go to the bull and repeat exactly the same story. This time it's make sure to keep your horns lowered. You can guess what happens next. The lion and the bull meet up for lunch, but they both arrive suspicious and on edge and untrusting. All hell breaks loose and the bull is killed. Now, depending on your mood, the moral of the story here is obviously don't listen to idle gossip, don't let outsiders assail your friendships, or never try to befriend a jackal. All of which is, so to speak, pretty sage advice. Thank you for joining this episode of Historical. If you enjoyed yourself, please head over to your streaming platform of choice, subscribe so that you never miss another episode, and leave us a rating and review so that we can continue to tell cool stories. You can also come and find us on Instagram and Twitter at historical underscore podcast and join the Facebook group, which is an excellent place to tell us which words you'd like to hear next. Join us again for more words that shape the world every Tuesday.